is where this is where I agree with you. I don't think Bitcoin extinguishes the state because although it is a monetary property right independent of coercion and violence, virtually independent, let's say, not 100%, we're still left with all the physical property rights and our own physical person. And like we need physical security and physical reality. So my general thought here somewhat inspired by Hoppe's democracy, the God that failed is that Bitcoin ends up being this economic limiting factor on state overgrowth, let's say. So by increasing the ratio of resistant to non-resistant actors, it's shrinking the tax base, which would lead to a shrinking of the state, you know, possibly even a fragmentation of nation states. And maybe we end up like in the, the distant long game here, back in a more monarchical type governance model where the tax base supports a more localized, more regionalized body of governance, a government, free private city, whatever you want to call it, that owns that property by virtue of its defending it, right? It's actually physically secured a territory. And then market actors just freely pay, you know, they negotiate openly with that monarch to live in that city or that jurisdiction, whatever it's called, paying in Bitcoin, you know? So you end up with everyone owning Bitcoin and kind of renting everything else from these monarchs in my hypothetical model here. I think that's a plausible stepping stone in the probably not so distant future. Is it going to be um, a stable environment? That's a whole other question, right? Um, like, you know, will the, if we would have these kind of city states uh, and monarchs, what would the trend be? Would the trend be ever further fracturing? Um, and are we then not end, end up with a bunch of sovereign individuals? Um, or is the, the trend further centralization and, and a, f a further widespread belief of, of authority uh, and such? Um, it's difficult to say. Again, man, there's so, there's so many different variables here that, that you could play with. Um, and yeah, tough to say. Yeah, agreed. And I'm, I should add, like, I don't, this is all just hypothesis. I don't. This is just where I'm at currently in my study of history and where I think things could go. I'm very open to criticism, feedback, not attached to this, just trying to think through it. I do think it will resolve this one issue that Rothbard refers to the work of John C. Calhoun addressing, which is, he's, and I'll, I'll read this excerpt, he says, the very existence of taxation negates any possibility of uh, neutrality. So basically they were talking about the idea of a neutral tax saying tax is by definition, non-neutral for given any level of taxation, the least that will happen will be the creation of two antagonistic social classes, the ruling classes who gain by and live off of taxation and the ruled classes who pay the taxes. So it's this, again, the element of coercion or non-mutuality or, or asymmetry between the, the taxed 
and the tax the the tax enforcer, let's say, and the taxpayer, this would go away if taxes were consensual, right? If you actually were able to negotiate with your tax rate and your service provider, just like any other service or good you buy in the marketplace, you wouldn't have these this asymmetry of uh, you know, you being stolen from and those those stolen proceeds being allocated arbitrarily to some uh, parasitic class, like that whole dynamic would go away when you remove coercion. It would, by definition, cease to be a tax. Yes. So what do we call it, by the way? What do you call consensual taxes? A payment, a price. <laughs> Protection payment? Well, no, it's a service payment, you know? Yeah. Um, or insurance payment, you know, protection can be done via insurance too. Yeah. Interesting. So, so do you think this creation of two antagonistic social classes, the taxpayers and the tax enforcers or collectors, is tax this receivers. tax receivers? Is this the, or I don't want to say the A, contributing factor to cultural divisiveness? Yes, I would argue so. Um, and I think as a historical analysis, we, we saw that in a lot of Soviet places, uh, uh, you know, communist Russia and, and Czechoslovakia and, and other places where the saying was that, yeah, if you don't steal, you steal from your family. Mm. Um, and also that uh, you're going to get stolen from, uh, that's a, that's a assumed, you know, that's the axiom. Mm. Uh, you're going to get looted. The question is just, will you steal more than they steal from you? Wow. If you do, uh, then, then it's good. If not, your family dies, um, because you will have no more food left. Um, so, so yes, if we have that artificial divide between looters and victims, right? Tax receivers and tax payees. Um, then that that is by definition a two class society, and it's a really real one, you know, not just one of, of race or caste, but one of of actual capital transformation uh, and redistribution. Wow, I've never heard that before. And that that gulf grows wider and wider as we further manipulate currency supplies, right? That is, the more you steal in general. Um, yeah. Inflation or currency supply inflation is, is just one way to steal. Right. You know? Right. Yeah, and, and that is because it is an involuntary redistribution of capital. Right? And because it was involuntary, uh, it is by definition not the way that the previous owner thought the highest possible that he could achieve with this resource. Right. If it were the highest possible that he could have done with that resource, he would have given it over voluntarily. Right? Yes. But because it was not, you know, do, giving his uh, stake to the thief was the yeah. least that he would have done. That's why the thief put a gun to his head uh, and, you know, then took the stake at force. Yeah, I think maybe we're pointing to what I consider to be a really key point here is that the free market is the only true democratic model. The idea of status democracy is kind of bullshit because <laughs> you are electing someone 
to steal from the productive economy and then determine where those proceeds should be allocated. But this, whatever decision they make is necessarily divergent from what the free market would have selected. From the most optimal outcome. Yeah. So it's, it's um, all, and the, Mises, I don't forget how he words it exactly in human action, but one of my takeaways from human action was all government action is a misallocation of capital. By definition, 100% all the time. It was always in the past. It will always be in the future. That's a logically true statement. Yes. So this entire model of human organization is self-deception writ large. And, and now you understand Bastiat's the seen and the unseen. Mm-hmm. Or where could we have been if mm-hmm. not we have wasted all these resources? It is such a painful point, but also uh, energizing in a way that you're like, oh my goodness, if everyone could just peep behind the curtain, the proverbial curtain here and see this for what it is, it is just a matter of awareness, right? If we could just, take, assuming this idea is correct and we're not self-deceiving or we've you know, tripped ourselves up in our thinking somewhere, if this idea is true and then we could just share it generally, then it would be over just like that. Statism would be, uh, you know, a chapter in a history book. Hopefully, you know, and, and man, I, I share your statement there that this is a appalling realization, man. It's, it's, it's crazy. The amount of suffering that humans enacted on themselves, the type of self-mutilation and torture is disgusting and it's our fault again we could have known better we just need to think (laughs) literally um but and that's that's devastating that's deeply depressing like seriously earth-shattering depressing but the glimpse on the other side is that yes we were very stupid in the past but as you say we can figure this out like this is not rocket science seriously this is basic thinking uh, that's it, that's logical reasoning that should be common sense you know everyone has the capability to come up with that if you don't have the capability to come up with that you're by definition not a human mm-hmm. by definition right so yes it's a dire situation but we not just have the capability to 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 to, to kind of um realize it but actually to change it right and and realizing it is changing it Yes. You know, if, if you're honest with yourself. Yes. Yeah, it, it, it is staggering in scope. You know, hundreds of millions murdered in the 20th century by state enterprise. And I'm not exaggerating at all. You know, it's that's the real, that's what really happened. That's the real number go up technology. Yeah, right. And And, but to your point, it's like, to be aware of it is to fix it, mm-hmm. right? You, because you, 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 you understand that reasoning and the state disappears for you. It's gone. Yes. And what's blowing my mind about this particular journey we've been on is that if you just trace it all the way down to the first principle, it's just something that is so 
obvious and irrefutably true, which is self-ownership. Like if we could just plant the idea, which is a very obvious idea, by the way, it's like, hey, everyone, (laughs) guess what? You own you. I own me. And this is true for everyone. We can't change it, right? The inalienable property right of our willpower, our consciousness, our volition, we can't even give it away. We can't even exchange it. And if we just build our socioeconomic system based on this fundamental irrefutable reality that everyone is self-owned and the extension of that is private property rights, right? Which is very laid out in libertarian philosophy. Then we build a socioeconomic system out of uh, like a, like a philosophical steel or something, right? It's a, it's a, a way of, constructing our interactions that's unshakable or, or unbreakable as composed to this coercive, as opposed to the coercive top-down state model. It, yes. You know, it, it, it goes super deep and the assumption is, is trivial. You know, the assumption is even more deeper than, than what you brought up. It's, it's not really self-ownership. Self-ownership is already a conclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, the assumption is more like, Hey, Hey, like, did you ever, you know, have this, desire like did you ever want something and then did you actually go and and do it you know you were hungry and you lifted your arm and you ate you know congratulations the state is obsolete (laughs) you know (laughs) if you've ever eaten a sandwich (laughs) the state's obsolete (laughs) um yeah i did this just sort of re-radicalizes me and my desire to help educate people when you come to see things through this very, you know, simple but powerful lens. I mean, you're just almost overwhelmed by the feeling of wanting to share it. So yes, very much. And 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 you know, your series with Ferveki was was great on this. Uh, and it got me thinking, this is somewhat of a um, a psychotechnology again, right? Mm-hmm. And the state is a psychotechnology too, mm-hmm. it's a psychovirus. Um, and, and reason is the firewall to protect you from that virus. Mm. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Well, so, and it's, you know, it, it needs fear. It needs fear. Yes. It needs fear is at the root of this. Yeah, fear is at the root. Fear of it. being the absence of love, and yes. love is at the root of freedom. Yes, and it, oh my god! If if you are in a fearful mindset, you can never achieve liberty. Right, and if you love, you can never end up in tyranny. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's almost like. What comes to mind here is as if we've been building our houses out of pure asbestos for thousands of years (laughs) and we keep dying of some nasty asbestos induced disease and we're wondering what's going on. Yeah. And it's like, we're building our socioeconomic houses out of coercion, compulsion, and violence. And we keep wondering why they collapse. It's self-inflicted suffering. Yeah. And I still don't understand why. That's one of the things that really baffles me. Why? 
I mean, we're just wrestling with, because fear is ego-based, right? Love would be more, I'll use the word spirit, but we'll just say our higher self-based, more selfless, whereas fear is more selfish. Aren't humans the medium of exchange, if you will, between these two domains of animal and angel? Yeah, I guess that's, I guess that's our story, you know? smart enough to differentiate good and evil, yet self-deceptive enough to do evil by thinking it's good. Wow. <laughs> That's one you could think about for about 20 years. <laughs> Humans are weird creatures, truly. Indeed we are. Okay, that's, that's a really good point. Um, all right, I'm gonna revisit another thing Calhoun said that Rothbard quotes here. And again, pointing to the, I guess, weakness of constitutional documents for a government. Rothbard says, quote, Calhoun goes on to point out that a constitution will not be able to keep the government limited. For given a monopoly Supreme Court selected by the self-same government and granted the power of ultimate decision-making, the political ends will always favor a broad or loose interpretation of the wording of the constitution serving to expand the powers of government over the citizenry. And over time, the ends will inexorably tend to win out over the minority of outs who will argue vainly for a strict interpretation, limiting state power. So by ends and outs, I think he's referring to the tax payers versus receivers again, and that ultimately the people in position of tax receivership, they'll just, they, I mean, they, they control the apparatus of the state. They have every incentive to overcome the limitations placed on them by constitutional documents. And that's just what happens over time, right? We start out with a limited government. The United States is a great example. Uh, no central bank for a number of attempts. 1913, we get a central bank. 100 years later, the, you know, the federal government is more top-heavy and bureaucratically bloated than ever. And here we are. Yeah. And a great resource on this is Lysander Spooner's The Constitution of No Authority, short collection of letters or, or newspaper publications, I think. Um, and, and he goes basically through numerous logical contradictions with constitutions. Um, you know, first of all, uh, who, if this is to be considered a, a valid contract, right, then who is the person who signed the contract? Mm. And because obviously contracts only apply to people who signed it. So who signed the American Constitution? I don't know, 40 dead guys, all of them gone, long gone. It, uh, all the people who lived back in that time and did not sign the Constitution did not engage in the contract. Mm. All the people who, who were born after that contract was signed obviously also uh, don't, uh, are, are not obligated by this type of contract. And, uh, and the same goes for the bureaucrats, right? The bureaucrats who are, who are now in effect have not signed the Constitution. They've not agreed to, on it, right? And they've not vowed to uphold it. Hmm. Yeah, it's an excellent point. So do you think that uh, the the I, very idea of constitutions or founding government documents just falls away? I mean, in the digital age, it's kind of like the, the what comes to mind is the code is law dynamic where 
it doesn't even make sense to scribble a bunch of thoughts down on a sheet of paper and say, Hey, this is what we're going to do. I mean, you can do it. I guess there's, it does give you some spirit of an agreement, but ultimately it's going to be what's encoded that really matters. Well, I, I think contracts are utmost powerful, right? Uh, so, uh, and contracts are so much more than just computer code, right? Uh, that's property right transfers conditionally, you know, that's wet code and that's super difficult. Man, again, like scarce resource allocation conflicts are tricky. <laughs> they are. Um, and to completely automate that is not trivial, right? But it doesn't have to be. It really doesn't. Uh, contracts are nice. It's just, you know, contracts should be limited to the people who agree to them. Right. <laughs> that's all I'm asking. And if that's if that's the case, then the Constitution has no authority. Right. Wow. That's so, and I mean, it, we probably sound like crazy tinfoil hat people to outsiders <laughs> who deify the Constitution and democracy, right? As if we have stumbled on some type of ultimate form of human governance or institution but if you just view it through the lens of history i mean it's just the latest iteration of statism yes you know i'm that's that's really like some of the weird points man that when you start looking at the things for, through human action and you come at property rights and individual sovereignty like it just makes so much sense and it, it it gets echoed to be true in so many different uh, scenarios or, or examples that, I don't know, sometimes it's it, it's almost like I'm thinking this is too easy. Like I'm, I, I've got something horribly wrong here <laughs> like this, because, you know, if it, if it truly were that easy, um, like, it, you know, either it's one of those things that you just, if you don't see it, you just don't see it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that might actually be the case, you know, that that's, again, kind of the, the Plato analogy of the cliff, uh, of the cave, right? Once once you see it, you see it. But before that, you just don't. And there's no way that you're going to see it. Um, the question is, why didn't more people see it yet? Um, well, I'm back to, to even those that saw it faced quite the dilemma. Again, pre-Bitcoin, it's like, if you can see this thing for what it is, but you're faced with, you know, you tell the truth to a population that often harangues or even murders the truth tellers, or you can go participate in the fraud and enrich yourself and your family forever. All of a sudden you're faced with this very real dilemma, right? Between moral integrity and financial well-being or something to that effect. Um, yeah, and I agree. It's simple, but not easy, right? Not easy to overcome that that dilemma yeah and, and and you know that's that's the thing right once there's a difference between nations and ignorance as to mm -hmm. earlier right mm -hmm. nations is you just see the shadows and you don't you have never once seen the colorful pictures yeah. right you just don't have that information available and the state ignorance depends on that exactly yeah. exactly and but 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 ignorance is then to to know something mm -hmm. right to 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 know that it's true but to still act wrongly right. and in, in the false way uh, so that's the example that you brought up, right? You you realize what uh, that humans act and what property is, uh -huh. but then you think that it's like a very hopeless state. You know, you're uh -huh. you're convinced that there is no way out. That uh, that like 
that could never be manifested on, on the large scale. You know, we're never going to reach that utopia, quote unquote. And then you go to the dark side, so to say, and you're like, if I cannot live in hell, uh, sorry, if I cannot live in heaven, then I will rule in hell. Yes. Uh, and, uh. and I will be the one who understands the matrix and who goes back and who, who tries to manipulate it um, to, to my favor, uh, knowing very well that this is draining the literal lifeblood uh, and energy of, of others. Well, so do you think this is the dynamic at play with states historically recruiting opinion makers and I, ideal? What how do they describe them? Just the well, a great name that I love from from Prusa is the intellectual bodyguard of the mm. House of Hohenzollern. Like that was the perfect name that that these uh, scientists scientificists <laughs> gave themselves. Um, this really is the intellectual bodyguard. Like yeah. Again, the state is a, a psychotechnology in shape of a virus, basically, you know, mm -hmm. a, a parasitic takeover. Uh, it, it needs to be installed in the hardware as soon as possible. You know, yeah. as soon as you can reboot the hardware to to get that virus in, the better. And right. that's why we saw uh, psychopaths like Bismarck, for example, uh, being core part of uh, or working tightly together with the intellectual bodyguard of the House of Hohenzollern to establish the Prussian outcome-based education mm -hmm. was created to, uh, to, to foster obeying machines that are perfect for the war industrial complex uh, and, and the, the good production, uh, like the, the regular industrial production complex. Mm -hmm. um, and this schooling system, this uh, well, literally indoctrination system uh, is, is peddled all across the world nowadays. And yes, uh, the entire intellectual bodyguard is heavily up in arms and fighting a, a pretty much a war on the mind. So they gave in to that temptation. Then, do you th or well, I don't. Know, let me ask: Do you think these ideological bodyguards see that the king or the emperor has no clothes, so to speak? But then the emperor says, "Hey, here's a fat bribe and stipend and power and wealth, just." Let's go along with the illusion that I have some clothes. And then they they put those bodyguards to work, you know, supporting the mythology of the state. Is that what's going on? I, I think with most people, no. Uh, most people are nascent. Um, they, they have the virus already installed, so to say. And then they approach the problem uh, and they, they want to do good. Uh, and they think that using the magnificent state power uh, is the best to manifest their will on how to change the world. Um, and mm. they don't see anything wrong with that. I, I think that's the vast, vast, vast majority of people. Um, but I'm absolutely convinced, in fact, of personal experience, that there are uh, it, that there are people who full well understand this game and who are very conscious in, in what they do and not just like want to kind of dominant, dominate and, and manifest their will, but to do it in a way that they can laugh at the people that they dominate, um, making it that, that kind of obvious. So um, it's kind of like, uh, you know, in, in Atlas Shrugged, um, there is uh, the, this professor of uh, John Galt and the others. Uh, they have two professors. One of them stays their mentor up until long and old life, and the other goes and becomes the leader of the state uh, uh, science institute. 
Um, you know, this and that now leader of the State Science Institute full well understands these topics, but he has given up hope uh, and he would rather uh, rule in hell. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So, whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. Interesting. So the individual that came to mind for me was Alan Greenspan. Oh, yes. Great, you know, his, great one his, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Full his, on. er, his early years writing, advocating for gold, right? That we, you needed a sound store value to hold government in check, et cetera, et cetera. And then completely flips <laughs> and ends up becoming the, the, he was the chairman of the federal reserve, I believe. Yes. Yeah. So talk about going to the dark side. I mean, you're arguing for private property rights and um, the analog regulator of government and gold. And then you, you head up the largest central bank in the world, which is the darkest of the dark side (laughs) uh, from a monetary standpoint. Is that an individual then that faced this dilemma? Like he saw the whole game and then just said, I'm going to go over here and, play according to my own self-interest. I mean, you know, that that's, that's quite an accusation to make, uh, but I, I think it's, it's correct. Um, again, like there, there are many people like that. And, and, you know, um, you're like that too, often. Uh, like, I mean, everyone, you know, it's mm. like, this is a very, you know, to turn a blind eye is so tempting. It's so easy and it feels so good. Right, to just ignore stuff. Um, uh, yeah, but it's, it's a deadly sin. Um, I, I think it is. And I, I still get the people who, who fall for it. Uh, again, I do myself. Um, but this is something you know, very deep. Uh, Marduk uh, was the Egyptian uh, god who had a head all made of ice. Uh, you know, and he could see in all directions. Uh, he did not look away. Uh, he did not ignore um, he, he was conscious. Um, I mean, I, I think that's a value striving for, let's put it like that. So, and then I just want, you know, if we just assume that Greenspan was one of those guys that went to the dark side, would Bitcoin have changed that? I mean, I guess it would have oh, changed, that's- it would have changed his economic potential 
right? If he was early on advocating for Bitcoin and Bitcoin's monetizing, maybe he could have been independent of the Federal Reserve. He could have had self-interest independent of the state. Oh yeah, that's so interesting. So basically what you're saying is that there are a lot of people who would turn a blind eye and when they see an alternative that is more cost-efficient and, and, and more protective, then they will they are less likely to turn a blind eye and more likely to actually take the care. And therefore the the nation state dwindles. Well, you know, I'm out on a limb here, but I'll say for myself the fact that I make a living educating people about these topics is only possible because of Bitcoin, right? There wouldn't be a market for this. There wouldn't be uh, the businesses involved with Bitcoin that, you know, that I interact with. I mean, this whole thing, this whole, whatever we're doing right now, this decentralized education or philosophical meandering, whatever it is, is enabled by Bitcoin. <laughs> so if Bitcoin did not exist, I would clearly be doing you know, very likely something else, or would be doing a lot less of this, let's say. So. And, and, and probably the something else that you would be doing would in fact, you would probably strive to put yourself high up into the fiat food chain, right? Going close to the money spigot, uh, being more of a tax receiver than, than taxpayer. Right? Yeah. Well, now you're literally doing the opposite, right? <laughs> like right. as, as much of the opposite as possible. So, and, and that's something that I, I realized about myself too. Like I, I would, I'm kind of afraid of the person that I would have become if not for Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. um, that would be, uh, that, that could have been very scary. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm very grateful for the fact that, that Bitcoin, it incentivizes such a tremendous character change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, John Wallace made beautiful work on, on laying that out in his podcast of that. This is just not just a phenomenon for, that applies to me. Like this is everyone in the Bitcoin space. Everyone has such a incredible change of character. Um, and what, what I think that understanding the ethics of liberty is a core part of reshaping your worldview in, to such a big extent. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's um, very impactful. You know, and we're all just struggling, I guess, to articulate what's going on. Um, but they're definitely, and this is something I'm exploring a lot, is they're definitely, I don't see clear arrows of causality in reality. I see a lot of feedback loops. Mm -hmm. And there's something about the variation of life. Like we have all of these possibilities and options and choice and reason we can transform but there's something about that in you know nearly infinite variation of life encountering something that's totally invariant that you really see a lot of feedback between so it seems to me like the total the absolute invariance of bitcoin in terms of its rules its supply cap persistency etc is just transforming all of the variations we call, you know, life, you know, organisms, organizations, institutions, et cetera. Um, that's pretty meta and abstract, but that's just how I think about it lately. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, and, you know, of course, these are also the, the great physical constants like gravity and, and, and such mm -hmm. like this. But you know, 
also in, in what we're talking about, it, it, that's property rights or, or human action. You know, that's, mm -hmm. that's the axiom that you continue to like to just revamp, you know, mm -hmm. it, it, it harmonizes so nicely across so many layers when you take, you know, human action as the boundary. Mm -hmm. um, and again, like having boundaries is essential. If you don't have them, you don't exist. Um, so there need to be some boundaries and, and you have to choose them carefully. And I'm, I'm not even sure how to best go about choosing boundaries, to be honest. Um, but, but maybe one thing is like a, that you continuously find that boundary to be immovable across multiple different vectors, so to say, you know, and, and, uh, property or, you know, humans act as kind of one of those things, right? That's like, you just cannot get around it. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's like, I, I tried so hard to, to go deeper than that. And I don't think you can. Right? And many people try it. And I think it's like a pretty immovable bound at this point on in the logical realm, right? And so is Bitcoin, like 21 million Bitcoin is pretty solid. It's pretty immovable, immovable. Many people have tried, more people will try in the future. And we will see how immovable it actually is. The more immovable it is, the better of a boundary it becomes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. That's that's a really good way to look at it. Is you know, where are the immovable lines? And historically, violence and force has been a pretty immovable line, right? Death and taxes. Mm -hmm. We're going to draw the line here. We hold the guns. You're going to do what we say because you're scared, you know, of death. Mm -hmm or, or pain. Um, but all those barriers, the state erects are contrary to voluntary human action. So there is a cost, right? It's, it's the cost is accruing. Every time you dispossess someone, it's not like they're just going to take it full on the chin and just, Oh, I, you know, worship the state. They're all, they're going to undermine you every chance they get. So it's more about building our socioeconomic systems that accord themselves with the voluntary human action versus try to corral human action. Um, okay, I'll come back down to earth now. Oh, no, oh, one, one additional thing, right, is that when you find a boundary that can be moved, right, then expand it instead of shrinking it, mm -hmm. right? I think that's another kind of ethic that we could establish, right? That an increasing space is better than a shrinking space. Um, and now if you would steal, or, or so capital is a movable boundary. It is a boundary. You cannot spend more than you have. Mm -hmm. you know? And when you have it, you have it. You can't get rid of it. You know. Uh, so like this is the, the it, it's a boundary, but you can move it. Um, if you steal from others, you shrink that boundary, right? You, you decrease the space of, of capital, so to say, um, therefore making it immoral, right? While when, when being voluntary and, and collaborative and productive, the, the, you know, that first and foremost, a profitable entrepreneur, mm -hmm. then you're in fact increasing the boundaries of capital, mm. um, making it arguably a, a inherently good thing. Yeah, well said. Yeah. That's a great point. Um, okay. So, let's kind of finish up on this topic. So a lot of people may agree with the general theme of what we're seeing, like more freedom, less government seems to make sense. But then these very common questions 
creep into the, the discussion. Like, what about the roads? What about the courts? What about law? Um, and I'll read an excerpt here just to introduce us to the concept of, of law. Rothbard writes, quote, for most law, but especially the most libertarian parts of the law, emerged not from the state, but out of non-state institutions, tribal custom, common law judges and courts, the law merchant in mercantile courts, or admiralty law in tribunals set up by shippers themselves. In the case of competing common law judges, as well as elders of tribes, the judges were not engaged in making law, but in finding the law in existing and generally accepted principles, and then applying that law to specific cases or to new technological or institutional conditions. So I think, I mean, this kind of gets to the point of boundaries you were just making. It's like they need to be discovered, right? That market actors freely and voluntarily interacting discover the boundaries of interaction through the process of interacting versus the top-down positivistic approach where there's one power from on high that tells everyone where the boundaries are. Yes, exactly. And it's it's also a thing that, you know, humans are, are fallible. Um, and a conflict uh, of, of resources is a very delicate thing. Mm-hmm. And you're going to make mistakes, right? So that's why there needs to be a feedback mechanism that if you make a mistake, there are consequences that prevent you from making future mistakes. Um, and in a state, we don't have that. You know, if the state makes a mistake, there is no higher order that that could punish, so to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's why we need a free market, especially in law, right? Mm-hmm. Because people can fail. You can make a bad judgment and you will not get bailed out. <laughs> that's that's essential. Yeah, the you know, and he also at the end of this, he's saying institutional and technological conditions change. That changes you know, the boundaries of law and property and its interpretation. So we have to be free to participate in that discovery process. Otherwise we're going to get off track. Exactly. And humans are crazy creative creatures, you know, and we come up with new materials all the time mm. and, and with new processes and new uh, psychotechnologies too. Right. Yeah. And, and I don't think that it's, kind of possible to make accurate legal statements for scenarios in the future, you know, like there's just, there's too much that, that could change, uh, where, where you're not certain of how to kind of predict it. Um, let me, so this, this idea of, of, of discovering law versus legislating law, this in my mind is kind of like a shadow of price distortion in a way mm-hmm. that once you start to legislate the money supply versus it being discovered naturally, we get price distortion, price being the signal that's coordinating markets, law being the signal that's coordinating conflict resolution, maybe. Um, but, but, but the, the theme here is that competition itself is the discovery process. That's what the free market is, Mm -hmm. right? Leave people alone to freely compete, peaceably compete and 
continually rediscover what's true and accurate and relevant at any given point. The same is true in law, right? We have, if we don't do that and we start to, I guess these are both forms of dampening feedback, or if you manipulate the money supply or you start legislating law, you're not incorporating feedback from market actors. So you get these pathologies, right? That we call price distortion or uh, I don't know, legal corruption, I suppose. Yeah, and I guess that's a that's an, a nuanced line that you want to walk, right? Because you want entrepreneurs to innovate and to solve problems more elegantly. And so, let's say you're a restaurant owner, right? And and or a cook, you want to make a dish that's especially delightful and that's maybe new and surprising, right? Mm -hmm. And if you make that, then you're gonna get paid more for for being an innovative cook. Um, so that's kind of the incentive, right? And that's what we want to have. Uh, that's a good thing. Um, but any kind of experimentation comes with a whole bunch of failure, right? You're going to mm -hmm. cook many awful dishes before you make good ones, uh -huh. especially innovative good ones. Um, uh -huh. So we, if we want to have innovation, there there needs to be failure. Uh -huh. And now the question is, what? how do you deal with the failure? And then the, the kind of... The tempting way is to just say, well, let's outsource the failure to someone else, right? If I fail, someone else pays for it, and I just continue. Mm -hmm. um, that's great for the for the person who fails, right? Um, and arguably, to a certain extent, you want to have that, right? It's basically what a limited liable company is kind of doing. I'm still not sure if that's a, a good thing or a bad thing, because it limits failure, right? The, the cost of failure gets decreased, it gets limited, and other people get stuck with the cost of failure other than the per person who actually uh, like in, in ventured out into this. So, yeah. um, but so what that means that if we don't have that failure, we're still going to get innovation. Arguably, we're going to get more innovation than we would otherwise have because there is no potential cost to bad innovation. Mm. And so we're going to innovate more. The Austrians would say you, you invest into longer production stages or more roundabout production stages, as Hayek would say. Um, and that leads to a, at least a, initially a boom, right? You feel great, uh, all these innovative things, right? But because the feedback mechanism is missing, you have the ratio of failures to uh, uh, wins, so to say, or profits uh, increases. In, so there will be more and more failures because there is no more downward feedback pressure, right? Mm -hmm. um, Yeah, and the cost of those failures is getting externalized, to your point, right? Mm -hmm. Not the people that executed the failure, but whoever, presumably those at the bottom of the socioeconomic hierarchy are incurring the cost of those failures. I guess it kind of depends on, on how you set up that that uh, that shifting of, of the default. Um, you know, you, you could set up a scheme where uh, the only the wealthiest percent of the people fail uh, pay, have to pay for the bankruptcy courses of, of entrepreneurs. You know, yeah. uh, you, you you could conceive of such a thing, right? And and then only the the top class would would suffer from the failure. Right. Yeah, but never works out like that in practice, right? Because the top yeah, some... class ends up writing the laws and they write laws <laughs> that favor themselves. But even if yes. it's just if it's just inflation, right? Where basically the government's printing money to paper over its own bad decision-making, that inflation really disproportionately affects the economically vulnerable. 
Well, I mean, if you're accurate, it affects the people who receive the newly printed money later. And that again, that does not have to be the lower class, right? Again, you could conceive of a way that, you know, sure. the Fed sends out money to a homeless person on the street, you yeah. know, or like, uh, that's that like poor people and low social status people constantly benefit from the Cantillon effect. Mm -hmm. um, it's just that on, on the macro scale, yes, very much. They, they right. tend to be more on, on the lower ladder than on the higher. But again, yeah. the Cantillon effect is, is, is relative. I'm sure, you know, a homeless American is pretty low in, in, the, in the Cantillon hierarchy compared in the U US market, but in the global market, he's still miles before anyone from right. you know, Congo. Yeah, it's such a shell game, <laughs> right? Where we keep trying to abdicate failure somewhere else where I guess in a purely libertarian, hard money world, the failure rests with the actor, the person taking the action or the group taking the action. Well, uh, yes. Well, ultimately, yes. Or at the starting point, yes. But the person who carries the risk uh, can abdicate it to someone else. Um, and I, I don't think that that's a bad thing. If, if it were a bad thing, then insurance would be bad. Um, you know, voluntary uh, 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 deleveraging of risk, so to oh, say, a, a right, transfer right. of yeah. risk, right? Yeah. Um, so that's what I'm saying. Like, we have to be careful here to to not throw the baby with the bathwater too, right? It's it's great that entrepreneurs can um, reduce their their risk of failure because we want entrepreneurs to thrive. Mm -hmm. um, we need the problem solvers. We need the creative geniuses. Right? And if we would butcher everyone for the first mistake that he makes, you know, we would be dead as a species pretty soon. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm so hesitant about these limited liable companies because like, they're actually pretty genius you know, and, and uh, a kind of a miracle that we come up with this, that you can actually you know, officially, legally have this entity um, with a certain capital stock and, and then you go out there, you as a person go and act in the name of this fictitious entity. Um, and if you make mistakes, you only have to pay a certain amount. Like that's, that's super, that's, that's ridiculous. Um, but so on a pure kind of uh, uh, legal view, as, as Rothbard would lay it out in this book, I'm saying that the founders, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the managers, the capitalists, uh, the investors, and the, uh, the customers all know that this is, they're dealing with a limited liable construct and they know it before they make the deal. Right. Um, and therefore, it's voluntary consent. You know, if you don't yeah. want to deal with a limited liable company, then deal with a private, uh, uh, you know, a fully liable entity. Mm -hmm. um, but, so, that, you know, that's that's why, again, like, is it unethical, a limited liable companies? No, because they're voluntary. Mm -hmm. Might they skew incentives? Oh, yes, mm -hmm. very much. And, um, and again, there's an infinite amount of, of playroom inside how we can structure these incentives while still being in the voluntary model. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it comes back to the crux of voluntarism, right? It's, yeah. Whereas in, you know, I don't know, it's muddy with inflation too, because presumably everyone would be educated on the monetary system. They know that how the central bank is manipulating them. They would choose to accord their actions, um, you know, in response to that. But the reality of it is that 
most people have no idea how money works or how they're being victimized by inflation. So, um, yeah, I guess the punchline in my mind is that the more voluntarism or we, the flip, the flip side of it, the less involuntarism, if that's even a word you can take out of a system, the more voluntarism you can put in involuntarism, you can take out the more sustainable, profitable, and concordant it is. It's just um, a more sustainable, dynamic equilibrium. Basically, yes. All conflict gets resolved in price. Yeah. I know in, in, a, in a truly voluntarist system, is um, there is still potential for conflict, but there is no actual conflict. Because if there were a conflict, someone would profit, uh, would, would, um, there's uh, an arbitrage. Yeah, there's an arbitrage. Exactly. Yeah. So that's kind of the, that, um, th theoretical concept that, um, Mises initially proposed, I think, and, and Barry Rothbard refined it in Man Economy and State. That's the evenly rotating economy. Right. Um, that's where yeah. the future is certain. Um, and that, you know, changes a, a lot. It's, it's a theoretical construct. It's not how humans manifest themselves. Yeah. It's useful to think about it mainly for interest rate uh, analysis. Yes, but that's off the weeds here. I don't know how I even. No, got no, to no. That. I, I really <laughs> that imagined order of the evenly rotating economy is super important. Um, it's like it's what markets are aimed at, but we know we can never attain. Right? You can never. It's mm -hmm. basically saying there's no uncertainty. There's pure certainty. I think also the purchasing power of money goes to zero in that environment because you can always just schedule your inflows and outflows such that you never have the need for a buffer of liquidity. Um, exactly. When you know tomorrow already that at noon you want to eat a steak at that restaurant, mm -hmm. then you would sell your money that you hold today um, of the price of the steak minus the interest rate. Mm -hmm. You would hold that money in a debt contract or you would invest that money into a debt contract, mm -hmm. uh, earn the market rate of interest, um, and then uh, return tomorrow at noon, terminate that contract and, and redeem it instantly uh, for, for the stake. You know? So you would not yeah. hold money at all. The demand to hold money is zero. Yes. And that's why money is an insurance policy on the uncertainty of the future. A tool to remove uneasiness.